Pepin is step. Oh, the corkscrew off the Euro. Kyrie Irving is locked in. Hello and welcome back to the Nothing But Nets podcast. I'm your host, Christian Hale, and I am joined by two very special guests. We have Brendan and Caleb from the Brooklyn Nets cast. How are you guys doing today? Good, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for joining us. We are happy to have you. We have a couple of topics to go over today. Uh, so I guess we'll just get right into it. Let's talk about the season awards. Uh, I think all of them have come out at this point. We have a couple of surprises, maybe not some surprises. Uh, what do you guys think about Julius Randle as MIP? I'd say it's very well deserved. He definitely took a step up and he gave uh, the Knicks their first playoff appearance in forever. I mean, he did choke in the playoffs, I'll say that, but this is a regular season award. And I feel like in every aspect, he really improved his game, his playmaking really improved his scoring and he just has a different um, drive almost uh, better mentality at going to the bucket. And it's, uh, it's been very impressive to watch and I can't wait to see what he brings to the table next season. Yeah. I'd have to agree with Caleb. I think that uh, it was very well deserved. I, I don't even know. Maybe Jordan Clarkson was a close second for me because he took that step to Utah and became that six man, that dynamic guy that made them the first seed in the West but honestly, uh, Randall really carried the Knicks. The Knicks were projected to win, I think, 15 games at the beginning of the season in the 72-game season. And everyone thought that was reasonable because there was a bunch of no-names on the team, like Reggie Bullock, Derrick Rose, they traded for a midseason. Uh, Julius Randall really took that step up and made himself into an all-star caliber player, uh, really took control of that Knicks team. And I think Thibodeau really did a nice job developing him and uh, exerting as much potential as he could have out of him, even though he didn't play that well in the playoffs. Um, it was his first playoff, so I can't really blame him for being under the pressure of the Big Apple. But honestly, during the regular season, he was a joy to watch. And yeah, very well deserved, in my opinion. I 100% agree. And congratulations to Julius Randle, because he is the first New York Knicks to record a 20.10 rebound and five assist season. I thought that was really cool. And just piggybacking off of Julius Randle, his head coach, Tom Thibodeau, ended up winning coach of the year this season which I just think is fantastic because as you said before, the Knicks were projected to win like 15 games this season. They ended up getting the fourth seed in the East. And even though they had a first round exit, this is way above and beyond what anyone expected the Knicks to do. So how much do you think Thibodeau's coaching sort of factored into, uh, factored into the Knicks, the Knicks success, uh, success this season? I think it was the biggest piece. And I'd also like to quickly mention, before I get back into that, People were saying that someone like Monty Williams should win over him. And I was going to say, I a thousand percent disagree. I think Monty Williams, a very good coach, of course. And I think it really, they have way more talent than the Knicks do. Obviously, they're playing better. They're farther in the playoffs. But the jump from where the Knicks were last season to now, I think is Tom Thibodeau's coaching, his intensity. And you can see their defense was, they were a top three defense this year. And every single play, they had intensity. They all wanted to play for each other, and their system just seemed to be something they all really bought into. So I think the coaching was one of the main reasons, 100%, that they made the playoffs and were successful. Yeah, I would have to agree with that as well. I think that Monty Williams, even though he did transform the Suns from about, I think it was like a 24-win team last season to 
what they were now in the second seed in the West. I think that they really added a lot of depth, like Chris Paul, that Chris Paul trade that they made, and then Jay Crowder coming over. There were just little things like that, like Mikhail Bridges taking a step up, Devin Booker transforming himself into a superstar like we thought he would, and DeAndre Ian becoming more of a defensive presence uh, under Monty Williams. I think that even though there was a lot of improvement from the Suns in many different categories, especially in their defensive aspect of their game, they're one of the worst defensive teams in the season of the year last season. I think that uh, what the Knicks did, they literally were the number one defensive efficiency rating team in the entire NBA. For a team with Nerlens Noel that was starting, who barely made any NBA roster after he got drafted, is really impressive because you just saw the, the player development skills that Tom Thibodeau has. Um, and it really was a joy to watch, even though obviously it was painful to watch the Knicks uh, fans get on our case about us being better than them. Um, but I really think that it was a joy to see the New York Knicks back and relevant in the playoffs because it really makes basketball better. It's when the Knicks and the Nets are both relevant. It really makes the rivalry even that much more special. Yeah, the Knicks-Nets rivalry is, wow. It's just something to watch. It's always fun to watch a Knicks-Nets game, uh, especially when both of them are successful. Uh, the fact is that with the Nets and when people talk about, you know, it's a plug and play and, uh, you know, you're really like buying a super team. I, I, I disagree with that statement and that sentiment. I mean, it's good to see the Knicks and Nets are both competing and both relevant now. And we're going to get into that uh, in a little bit about what the Nets did in the season. Uh, but just on the topic of Monty Williams and the Phoenix Suns, I want to highlight someone who I think might have gotten snubbed from the MVP award. And that is none other than Chris Paul. I was watching Chris Paul play in the Thunder last season when he brought the Thunder to the sixth seed, who were supposed to be a lottery team. And now the Suns went all the way from like the 10th seed last season. Now they're the second seed in the West. They just swept the Denver Nuggets, the third seed. The Denver Nuggets, who made the Western Conference Finals last season, 4 0 swept. And I think with that 37 point performance by CP3 in game four to close out, I mean, that just highlights you know, or encapsulates exactly what he's been doing all season that's been elevating the Suns to this level that allowed them to get the second seed in the West. You guys think Chris Paul got snubbed or you think Jokic deserved the MVP award? I will say I think he was a top five candidate. However, I do not think he did deserve MVP. I just think Jokic, he he led that team through everything they could. I mean, they were injured throughout the season. Obviously, that Jamal Murray injury was later in the season. But I feel like their team went through a lot this season as well. And Jokic, really, he didn't miss any games. He had he was the first player since, was it Kobe, that played every game as an MVP. And every single night showed out. His passing is probably the best I've ever seen from a big man. He gets buckets on command. And he's a leader, too. Just like, obviously, not on the level of Chris Paul, who is the best leader in NBA history, in my opinion. But he's a great leader, and he's great at everything he does, well-rounded, and had an absolutely terrific season. So I think Jokic did deserve it, but a lot of props to Chris Paul in a wonderful season. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I think even though Chris Paul was a catalyst for the Suns and really trans helped transform them, it wasn't just, like I said before, it wasn't just Chris Paul, the addition. It was also Jay Crowder. It was also Mikhail Bridges taking that step. It was also Devin Booker becoming more efficient on the floor. It was also DeAndre Ayton becoming more of a superstar. 
in front of our eyes. And there are other role players like Cam Cameron Payne, who we haven't even highlighted yet, who is also extremely efficient in the way that he came off the bench and was able to give Chris Paul rest and the Suns were still as effective on the floor. Um, even though uh, Chris Paul does make a tremendous impact on the Suns organization, the way that Yogi just transformed that Nuggets organization has been even more uh, outstanding to me, considering he was a second round pick and he was drafted during a Taco Bell commercial, which is probably the funniest thing to me because, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> I, I know it's kind of funny, but um, I mean, it just shows like he pretty much became from a nobody to an MVP. And it just shows everyone that it doesn't matter where you get drafted. It doesn't matter of if he sees your opportunity or not. And Jokic just really transformed the center position for the better. I think uh, he's really got that eye for a pass. He can rebound. He can score from all over the floor. He's one of the most exciting players to watch in the league. And I really think that he deserved it wholeheartedly. Maybe if Embiid had played an entire season, I think you could have made a case for Joel Embiid being the MVP. You could have made a case for Stephen Curry becoming the MVP if they had won that playing game. But um, I think that Jokic really helped transform that Nuggets franchise, him and Jamal Murray, into what it is now. And I, I hope to, to see them maybe further in the playoffs next year because obviously Jamal Murray wasn't there. But with a healthy Jokic, a healthy Jamal Murray, and PJ, Aaron Gordon, all these key role players – I really think the Nuggets have a great shot, and congrats to Jokic on uh, getting that MVP award. Yeah, I, I like what Jokic has done with the Nuggets, and they are going to be a perennial title contender for the foreseeable future, as long as there aren't any other long-term injuries. Uh, I definitely see where you're coming from uh, with Jokic, because he did revolutionize the center position in my eyes. I think that now it's not just about the centers being able to rebound the ball and do post moves. Now the centers can not really, you know, super uh, facilitate the ball and be that point center that Jokic is, but have more of an outside shot, be able to pass the ball a little bit more. I think he's really uh, expanding what the common conception of an NBA center is and what it will be for the foreseeable future. Uh, aside from that, we have Rudy Gobert winning his third DPOY. Uh, I don't think there's too much to argue about here. I have to say it's pretty well-deserved. Uh, Gobert is just an absolute monster defensively, and he's a big part of why the Utah Jazz secured the first seed in the NBA, as well as, uh, uh, you know, just being a great defensive team. So what do you guys think about Gobert winning his third uh, DPOY? I think there was no question, to me at least, that he was the most deserving of that award. I understand other players such as Ben, I feel like Ben Simmons, I put him second, had wonderful seasons, but Gobert is the, in my opinion, in this, for this next decade will be the best rim protector and probably the most well-rounded defender. I mean, what comes to mind with um, him is obviously he's not as explosive as some of the other three-time defensive player of the years. Uh, I feel like Dwight Howard, of course, prime Dwight Howard was, one of the best shows on TV, but he just reminds me of that extreme presence in the paint that nobody's going to get by him. He's going to block every shot. He's going to impact everyone um, on defensive end. I feel like he really runs that defense to a point where he can get everyone else in position to really succeed. I think he's just one of the best defenders I've ever watched. He's absolutely insane. Yeah, and to agree with that, I think if I don't know if you guys saw the end of that game 
I believe it was against the Clippers, um, when Gobert blocked like three shots at the end of the game to uh, to to secure the win. And honestly, that was probably one of the craziest sequences I've ever seen and just shows you the versatility that Gobert has. Not only can Kenny clamp the inside, but if you get him up in the air, he still has that athletic ability to guard the outside too. Uh, he blocks shots all over the floor. He's a defensive menace and nobody really wants to go up against him. Very intimidating at 7-1 and at his size is very useful for the Jazz and how they can play defense so efficiently. And pretty much the reason why the number one seed is why is because they're so efficient on the inside. So they force guys to shoot from the outside. And obviously you're not going to shoot at a better rate from three than you do from the inside. So with Gobert, it's such an advantage to have the force teams to shoot threes against you because he can force you to uh, draw yourself out of the paint because you're going to get feared of getting blocked. And he doesn't really foul that much. So Honestly, yeah, no complaints from me. I really thought that he had a great season. So uh, well-deserved Rudy Gobert again. I'm, I guarantee you we might see him five, six, seven times defensive player of the year by the time he retires. Wow. 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 That, that's a pretty bold prediction. But I honestly wouldn't be that surprised. I, I wouldn't. He's great defensively. And just the way that you described his attributes, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to watch him play on the defensive end. Uh, one more person from the Utah Jazz did get an NBA award. Uh, Jordan Clarkson won the Sixth Man of the Year award. I know Derek Rose was one of the finalists for that award. Um, I personally don't have too many strong thoughts on it. I think that it was pretty decently deserved, but Derek Rose could have made the case for it. Uh, I personally would have liked to see Derek Rose win it, but I'm not too upset that Jordan Clarkson did win it. He's having a great season um, and pretty a pretty good comeout season for him. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, my issue with uh, Derrick Rose being sixth man of the year is he was traded midseason. I feel like that really hurt any case of him winning it. But my main thing with uh, Clarkson is I feel like he just really stepped out and showed out for that team. They were the first, Utah was the first seed. I mean, 18 points a game coming off the bench, shot a 43% clip from field goal and had four rebounds and 2.5 assists. I feel like in general, he just, at some points, he just catch fire and really close out games for Utah. And he really wasn't having too many bad games. My only thing with his game is sometimes I have the same issue with uh, Michael Porter Jr. I feel like sometimes they really just start forcing shots up a little bit. And sometimes some ball movement would be in the works and would be a lot more effective. But, I mean, they're just straight buckets. And I, I love Jordan Clarkson's game. I can't see can't wait to see what he brings to the table next year. And his nickname, by the way, is Flamethrower. And I think that's very fitting for him. He's just a straight flamethrower. Yeah, I think Jordan, no complaints there. I think Jordan Clarkson was really um, I think I highlighted before, like probably the main reason why the Jazz took that step from the four seed, what they were, I believe, last year, to what they were now as they're the number one seed in the West. It's just because they have other guys outside of Donovan Mitchell and a bogey who can hit the outside shot, who can create their own shot, who can carry that, that second unit. Kind of like the Nets have where you can overlay Harden or Kyrie or Katie with the second unit and they're just straight buckets. So like as long as you get the, that offensive production from the second unit, it's really holding a lead. And that is what Utah was so effective at was holding a lead. And the fact that he was scoring almost 20 points a game was pretty crazy to me um, because he seemed lost in Cleveland, he seemed lost in uh, LA for times. And I think that he really 
took that next step uh, after Kobe died and uh, rest in peace, Kobe, obviously. But I think that he really used that motivation from Kobe when he was on his last years with the Lakers to really transform himself into the player that we all thought he could be coming out of college. But now that he's doing that, I really think that he deserved the six man award and there was no complaints from me about it. I have a quick announcement, by the way. Uh, the 2020-2021 um, NBA All-Defensive Teams were just announced. So the first team was, of course, Rudy, uh, Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, Draymond Green, which was a little bit of a shocker to me, being first team, even though he's an absolutely amazing defender. Uh, Giannis and Drew Holiday. And the second team was Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, Matisse Thybul, and Kawhi Leonard. Wow, that's uh, nothing really too surprising about it. I, I think that was a really good list. Uh, aside from, I mean, Draymond on the first team, I, I could see someone else on the first team. Maybe put that's Kawhi what I was thinking. Draymond. Like, yeah, you could switch some of those around. And But the, the name that really stuck out to me, because I haven't heard it uh, too much in these sort of uh, like season team talks, uh, was he Seibel from the Philadelphia 76ers. I know... Um, my producer talks about him a lot. She really likes him uh, as a player. She sees his potential, but he's young, isn't he? Yeah, this was his was his third season. Am I wrong about that? Is his third? It's his second season. He might second have been season. Here. It's hard. Everything seems to blend in because the last season. Last season was uh something else to say the least. Yeah, I believe it's second season actually. You're right. Wow, in your sophomore season, and you're already all defensive second team. Congratulations to Matisse Thybul. Everyone else, uh, pretty expected. <laughs> yeah, it's Drew Holiday, Giannis, because uh, the Bucks were a great defensive team all year. And I guess this might be the perfect segue into uh, what's been happening with the Brooklyn Nets currently. We're uh, in a deadlock with the Milwaukee Bucks series tied two to two. I'll have great touch base with you. Well, yes, uh, I think that's a great segue into our series. And I'll start off by saying I am just, I guess, sad is the correct word about Kyrie Irving. I hope he recovers soon. Same with James Harden. And to start off with games one and two, I'd like to say we had absolutely amazing ball movement and just continuity in general. I just felt like we really just got everyone involved. And our defensive rotations and our ability to limit Giannis in those first two games, I feel like was the main reason that we won I mean Giannis had 34 points and 32 I believe but the difference was we were making him take difficult shots and just really forcing his hand on trying to hit some of those threes and I think it's very important that we continue to do that not the series is tied up but those first two games everyone was shooting very well I mean Kevin Durant was being Kevin Durant and Joe Harris really stepped up in game one. And in general, we're just playing well. And then these last two games, I feel like we just lost our step and lost our energy. I think that's a lot to do with being away. But only getting 83 points in a playoff game and being an absolute offensive juggernaut is just, to me, disappointing. And we, we can't expect to play like that and win a series. So hopefully going home tomorrow, we can step up and really just close the series out because we're going to, we really need to stop tomorrow. I think tomorrow's more than anything, almost like a game seven. Because if we lose tomorrow, it's going to be tough to go back to 
Milwaukee and take that game. Yeah, I definitely agree with the uh, the whole crowd aspect of that. I was going to say that's my number one thing that's the factor in this series is the home crowds. You can see, I think uh, the three times they've played in Brooklyn this season, uh, once in the regular season, uh, twice in the postseason, the Nets have won all three games. And now the four times that they played in Milwaukee, twice in the regular season, twice in the postseason, Milwaukee's won all four games. So that home crowd is really giving you that advantage, that energy boost. And I think that all comes down to Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton is the X factor in the series for me, especially for Milwaukee. He is a two-faced player. He is quite an elite player at home. He gets behind the crowds and he makes difficult shots as he did at the end of the third quarter there that really stuck a dagger in our heart of that comeback. Mm -hmm. But, and then away, we saw him go six for 23 in game one. And that really was the difference. It wasn't even just the Nets playing defense on him. It's, I think... Uh, Chris Middleton is a much different player away than he is at home. And if we can continue to continue that trend and he can't score 25 to 30 points a game, I don't see them taking the game in Brooklyn. And even without Kevin Durant or Kyrie, I mean, sorry, Harden or Kyrie, because that, that home factor, Joe Harris is a much, 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 much better player at home. And we saw that during the playoffs, he was pretty bad in Boston and he was horrific in Milwaukee, these two games. So I think that if you look at the way that we play at home, um, we get behind the crowd a lot and Kevin Durant uh, will probably score at least 40 points in my opinion, next game. And that's not even an exaggeration because I think he's going to be taking at least 30 shots next game. And with his incredible efficiency at home, I think that he can really take advantage of the non Milwaukee crowd and PJ Tucker won't be as aggressive because the rest are going to call that game really tight. Uh, obviously, there was complaints from the organization to the NBA uh, about the officiating, which was quite horrible last game, as we saw. P.J. Tucker probably could have fouled out four or five times in the first half alone. Uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, to answer the third point that we that we were going through, I think that Kevin Durant can do it by himself. It's just can our role players also step up and play like they have all playoffs, bar those two games in Milwaukee. I think that Kevin Durant is a much better home player, at least this playoffs. He seems to be a little bit better at home than he is away, but I think that he can really uh, elevate his game and make sure that we don't lose a series. I've been seeing the sort of the Jekyll and Hyde of the Nets in this series. Like just, it's so stressful to watch because the Nets will go out, they'll win two at home, be up by, 49 in game two and end up winning by 39 and they'll go to Milwaukee and their offense just it's 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 staggered it's stopped stagnated I don't I don't know what you want to call it but 83 points and then 96 points in two straight games that just didn't make sense to me and I really have to mention this like what you just said Brendan about PJ Tucker Oh my God, the fouls that he gets away with on KD are insane. Every time KD has the ball, Tucker sticks his hand out. He gets like a little like uh, jab in. Tucker's just fouling Kevin Durant constantly with the ball. And KD is just sometimes tossing up shots because he feels the contact. He's hoping the refs are going to call it. Game four, Scott Foster and Tony Brothers had no intentions of giving Kevin Durant any superstar calls. That's just not how it was rolling for him. And that's unfortunate because that's just setting a bad 
uh, precedent for this series. If the whistles are going to get held and PJ Tucker is going to get away with all these fouls on KD, then it's just not going to be a great series because he can't, he can't do it by himself. He can't just go out there and be taking 40 shots, you know, and will the team in. If the role players aren't hitting and, you know, and he's not getting the calls going his way, then we're really not looking in good shape for this series. So that, that's just something I have to get off my chest. I really don't like the way PJ Tucker is playing quote unquote defense on Kevin Durant. I think it's more like a football play in a sense. KD is just getting fouled so often and he keeps on persevering. And I appreciate that but at the end of the day, you know, someone's got to say something. I know Steve Nash post game. He said that PJ Tucker was playing football defense. Like that wasn't basketball. It, it shouldn't be basketball. Um, and I will go ahead. I'd like to say real quick um, that my big thing is I feel refs um, make calls for the home crowd. It's a little bit of a pressure thing. I feel like sometimes calls just start rolling the home team's way and refs just keep going with it. I feel like we see this a lot in the NBA now. I feel like I've seen it more and more here where home teams just get the more calls. So if that's the case, PJ Tower, PJ Tucker is going to follow out in the uh, first half if he keeps playing like he did. I just feel like calls, especially with certain uh, refs, I feel like Scott Foster is a great example. They just seem to lean the way the home team. And it's confusing and frustrating. But at the end of the day, I guess we're home. So I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking about the Jokic foul in game four that got called as a flagrant two um, when it looked like a, a, a play on the ball when Cameron Payne had the ball. And uh, it's unfortunate Jokic kind of clipped his face a little bit. But the fact that that got called a flagrant two, I mean, just the fact that you look at that, you know, in that series compared to some of the fouls that we've seen in this series against the Nets and they haven't, they've just been called common fouls or maybe they haven't been called at all. It, it's, it's weird. And I get that home crowd pressure you know, from the refs, but I almost feel like even when we're at Barclays, the refs are sort of calling a little bit more against us. I mean, that, that's just what I'm feeling. You think that the whistles are sort of unfair, unfairly biased just towards Brooklyn in general because we are a super team and some people just don't want to see us be that great? I, I'd say that's relatively correct. I'd like to quickly comment on the Nikola Jokic ejection. And that, that was just extremely soft, I think. He barely – he did skim his face with his bicep, though. It wasn't even, like, his hand. His bicep, when going down, hit Cameron Payne in the nose, like the tip of the nose, and would have hit it, like, pushed it, pushed it into his face a little bit. But not on purpose. He hit the ball with his whole hand. The hand touched nothing but the ball. And that the fact that that's even a flagrant, to me, I think is 100% wrong. I know there's certain rules about contact to the face. But to me, there needs to be a line where there was no, there was 100% a play on the ball. He hit the ball. He barely, barely touched his face. I think that they were going to lose that game anyways, but it's really just the concept of let him play. It's an elimination game in the playoffs, and their season relies on this. This is the MVP. You're really going to eject him. It, it just bothered me a lot. And back to the point about the calls not going Brooklyn's way. I feel like there is a little bit of this leniency on calls against Brooklyn. I feel like they kind of roll with whatever they can to try and make the match more even, if that makes any sense. I feel like 
they believe our scoring ability is obviously elite, but on a different level. And I feel like sometimes they kind of let those calls go just to make it a more balanced game almost, which to me is concerning. I feel like every every player should get the same calls. I don't care who you are. If you're TLC, if you're Kevin Durant, if you get fouled a certain way, it should be called no matter what it is. And it, I really think the league needs to work on that. I know they've been talking about it in their committees about how certain fouls should be called. And I'm really hoping that gets worked on over the off season. Yeah, I actually think that um, they really need to do a, a, a deep, deep investigation onto uh, certain referees because I, I, this is not the first time, not even just with the Nets, this is not the first time we've seen Scott Foster and Tony Brothers combine and throw out a horse or a national television because you're trying to get young players into the game, right? And you see all this hard contact and uh, Kyrie's injury and how there was no call on that. I mean, honestly, I would say it wasn't intentional on Giannis's part. I just think that um, it was a bit uh, like he, he went in his landing zone and that's a foul on anywhere else on the floor, especially the three point line. So I don't know why that wasn't called at all, but um, I think that they really need to do a deep investigation on this, some of these referees because some of them are literally trash and they need to just do a, a house cleanse with new referees who haven't been in the league that long, but maybe have refereed elsewhere that are pretty much unbiased and don't really um, who understand the, the rules of basketball and don't um, get the home crowd, don't let the home crowds influence what they call. Um, and I think that they really need to, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much my point is that they need to do a house cleanse of some of these referees, even the, the long tenure ones like Scott Foster needs to go. Scott Foster, two names I'm not a fan of. <laughs> Just <laughs> personally, you know, as as a, as a Nets fan, as just an NBA fan, because he's notorious for making bad calls, or rather, not making those calls. But um, at the end of the day, you know, the odds are stacked against us. But now it's time to show the NBA what we're made of, because everyone's saying, "Oh, you know, it's going to be so easy with KD, Kyrie, and Harden, blah blah blah." Well, now it's just KD. Now it's just KD and a bunch of role players. So the question becomes: Is KD going to be able to step up? into that role because I know a lot of people now since uh, LeBron's first round exit he's starting to look a little older are regarding Kevin Durant as the best player on the planet so is he going to be able to support that with game five and my answer is absolutely if the game is called fairly if PJ Tucker is getting whistled for all those fouls I think that he's definitely going to have a good chance to drop a solid 40 points and then it's not just a matter of KD scoring, but can the role players step up? And we've seen it happen before. We've seen Joe Harris, you know, go unconscious and shoot seven of 10 from three and Brown with his floaters, Claxton. I think that we have a really good chance game five. And if we can carry that momentum into Milwaukee, maybe get Harden back, then we're talking about, you know, defeating the Bucks and getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. And who we're going to meet there? Probably Philadelphia. But aside from the Eastern Conference, if we could go back to the West for a second, I did mention LeBron. This is his first loss in round one of the playoffs. 14-1 and one record now. Kind of insane. Uh, and he lost to the Phoenix Suns with Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, Jay Crowder, and company. What do you guys think of that? 
it really opened up the West, in my opinion. It gave other teams almost a clear shot at going for a title run, or at least going to the finals. I feel like LeBron's really had a hold on whatever conference season for God knows how long. I mean, what is it now, 18 years, year 18? And every year he's in, he's in the finals. You know, he makes deep runs in the playoffs, knocks out good teams. He's an all-time great. We all know this. He's a top three player all time. And I feel like with him out, it really just opens up everything. I really have no idea who's going to make it to the finals. Obviously, in my opinion, the Suns are the favorites, but anything can happen in a playoff series. I mean, look look at what happens to the Nets even, I'd say. I mean, Harden, Kyrie out, it's not such a clear shot anymore. Say, God forbid, Devin Booker gets hurt. God forbid, Donovan Mitchell um, re-injures himself or gets worse a worse injury. This could go anywhere. So I really think it makes the West more interesting this year on how the things can roll. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, last year, especially in the bubble, uh, it was a bit one-sided. Like LeBron and AD literally just dominated the entire West. And uh, we all knew they were going to win the finals, even though the Heat stole two games off them. Jimmy Butler just went out of his mind for those two games. So I think that it, uh, it really was um, a sign of things to come maybe because you know, we used to see LeBron being able to single-handedly, especially against like teams like Toronto when they won 56 games, literally swept them in four games. He can't really do that anymore. And I mean, it's not to say that he's not going to average 25 points a game in the playoffs. It's not to say that he can carry teams to wins. It's more of that he can't do it more on a consistent basis than he used to because he is 37 um, and he's only going to get older. And as time goes, I believe that I wholeheartedly believe that he's going to see out his contract with the Lakers and wherever his son gets drafted, that's where he's going to end his career. So if the Lakers don't end up investing in, say, like Damian Lillard or another superstar, then that could be the end for that franchise because Anthony Davis cannot stay healthy. We saw that in the playoffs. We saw that in the regular season. He's just an injury-prone guy, even though he is quite fantastic when he's on the court. Um, there are other teams that stay healthy more often and can really – hold of 72 or now 81 82 game season um and can be healthy the entire season with younger guys and now that the lakers are losing this time which is pretty much their time to win obviously they won last year but they probably could have won again this year uh, if they had stayed healthy i think that is really taking a toll on lebron and uh it's going to open up the west for years to come because we got rising stars like devin booker and donovan mitchell ready to take over this league and really starting to become the fit. And even Luka Doncic, um, we forgot to mention him, but there are other faces of franchises in the West or the VNBA as well that are going to overtake him soon. And this could be the end of seeing LeBron, uh, at least on the Lakers, in this sort of setting again. Yeah, the Lakers' dominance that they exerted in the bubble, just it wasn't really anywhere to be found in the first round of the playoffs. And it's unfortunate that the Lakers did go down like that because – LeBron is really trying to catch Jordan and uphold his legacy. But uh, aside from that, we do have four teams left in the West, and one of them is going to end up making it to the NBA Finals. Uh, which one do you think is going to make it? And which do you think, I guess, like if they do make it, you think they would pose a big threat to Brooklyn? We got Utah, Phoenix, 
the Clippers and oh wait no just Utah the Clippers and Phoenix <laughs> Nuggets got eliminated what do you guys think I think the Suns are clear cut to go to the finals and they're the biggest threat I think any team with Chris Paul is extremely dangerous but now that he has that um, amazing supporting cast I don't know if we can consider them uh Devin Booker, part of a supporting cast. He is the guy there. But you have Devin Booker, you have Chris Paul, Pacal Bridges, uh, Jay Crowder, uh, DeAndre Ayton, Cameron Payne, which I also learned he lives with Chris Paul. He's picking up on everything Chris Paul does. I see him being very good for a long time. He's really been stepping up. Um, I mean, uh, their whole roster in general just has been playing amazing basketball with the well led Monty Williams team. And I I see no doubt that they go to the finals. I also see the uh, Clippers losing this series they're in currently. So I think it's going to be a Utah-Phoenix series. And I have Phoenix taking that, going to the finals. And I think they're the biggest threat by far. They're just a well-balanced team, well-coached, great defensive team. Devin Booker can put 40 on your head any night. And, yeah, they're a great team. Yeah, I honestly had the same predictions. Actually, I think it was mid-season almost. I predicted the Suns on our podcast to go to the finals. Yeah, and, we both did. We both did. Yeah, I remember this. And I think it was a bold prediction of mine because I thought the Lakers were uh, – like I think it was right around when LeBron and AD got injured uh, that I thought that the Suns were going to make it just because of – purely because of Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and DeAndre Eaton and the sporting cast they have. And I think that – uh, even though the Clippers do pose a big threat to the Nets because obviously Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, uh, we saw Paul George step out of his element, of his playoff P element, uh, and score 31 points the other night. Uh, I think that the Clippers just don't have the supporting cast, really, that's needed, especially with Serge Ibaka now for the playoffs. I don't think that they have enough, quite enough, to beat Utah in a seven-game series. I think Utah's a more balanced team and can shoot the three at an extremely high level and can defend at a really high level. I think that they'll pose the biggest threat to Phoenix going to the, the NBA Finals, but I think that Utah will come short to Phoenix purely because I think Phoenix is has more uh, or better veteran leadership. We even forgot about to talk about that Mike Conley hasn't played for Utah pretty much the entire playoffs. So maybe if he comes back, don't know if he'll come back. Um, he could be a difference maker for Utah in that Phoenix series if they do end up making it. But I think that Phoenix poses the biggest threat to Brooklyn purely because of what we said before about Chris Paul, his leadership, DeAndre Ayton, his offensive and defensive efficiency, basically what Andre Drummond is, but a lot better than Andre Drummond. And uh, Devin Booker obviously can score 40, as Caleb said, on your head at, at any point. And yeah, so I think that the Suns will take the West, um, but hopefully uh, we see a great series between Utah and LA, and hopefully we see a great series in the Western Conference Finals as well. I definitely see the Suns as the most likely to make the finals, but I wouldn't count out the Clippers, and here's why. Because the Clippers, when they're on, they look like possibly one of the greatest teams in the NBA when they're good. But when they're not good, like dropping the first two games in both of the series that they've played in this playoffs, um, they're just not good. So it comes down to what version of the Clippers are you going to get from night to night? 
but with that inconsistency and that uncertainty, because if they play 21 games, like, you know, they go to game seven, if they get to um, the Western Conference finals and they go in to play Brooklyn, it's just not, it's not going to work for them. That's way too many playoff games, which Phoenix, after clearing the Nuggets in four games, they have a lot of time to rest because I don't think this Clippers jazz series is over just yet. I think it's going to maybe go to six, potentially seven, uh, depending on how the Clippers play from night to night. But with Phoenix going into the finals with Brooklyn, and if we assume a healthy Nets lineup, I think it's going to come down to the way that Phoenix dismantled the Lakers was three-point shooting. I noticed that on the Lakers defensive scheme, whenever Chris Paul or Booker would drive into the lane, whoever was on the uh, block, like guarding the corner defend, uh, the corner shooter would actually come in and collapse. So if the Nets play a collapsed defense and the ball gets passed out to Crowder or Payne or one of the role players from Phoenix who can shoot the ball, that's going to draw some problems for the Nets. And then just in general, the way that Crowder and um, Payne are able to guard the perimeter, it's going to make it a lot harder for the Nets to be shooting the three ball. So I think that's something that we're going to have to look into as well. But it would definitely be a finals for the ages to see Brooklyn play against Phoenix. I would be so excited for it. Yeah, me as well. Uh, I'm happy you commented on the convergence defense or converging defense. And the most important two players at certain points of the game for Phoenix are going to be Jay Crowder and Mikel Bridges. They sit them two in the corners all game long. If they hit their shots, you're not going to beat them because every single time they're going to kick it out to them and they're going to give them their shots. And it's been extremely extremely efficient all season and especially these playoffs and I feel like Dem- they show that really in Denver how efficient of a three-point shooting team they can be and how they can just turn it up at any moment and DeAndre Ayton is one of my favorite players in the entire NBA I love him as a, um, a defensive player but his offense has really improved and he's really showed out in these playoffs and I can't wait to see what they do yeah honestly I think that uh, I really wanted Phoenix to make it just purely because of that whole Nets and uh, uh, Suns relationship. I know people have edited the Brooklyn and of uh, Phoenix logos together, and I think that's uh, kind of really funny just because I think we we're, we have great understandings between the fan bases, and I, I think that if we were to face the Suns, it'd be a really, really good series. We'd be Chris Ball going for his first ring, and probably his only ring because I, I see him retiring at some point soon, even though he's playing at a high level. He's getting to his about his 40s. So if he does win a ring, I could see him retiring soon. But obviously you have James Harden going for his first ring. If we do end up making it, you have Kyrie Irving coming off an injury and being uh, motivated to win these, win these games. And Kevin Durant pretty much would be playing at an all-time high level if we were to pass the Bucs if uh, Kyrie and James didn't play for the rest of the season or rest of the series against the Bucs. So I think that, uh, it, it's going to be quite the entertaining watch if both teams make it, and it would really be a, uh, quite the uh, quite the Twitter uh, adventure, I would say, because there might be some lost uh, tension between uh, or lost relationship between the Nets and the Suns if one of us beats the other. Yeah, I could definitely say that Suns Twitter is uh, a pretty decent fan base. My friend uh, friends with a couple of 
uh, Suns Twitter pages. But before we do get to the finals versus the Suns, we do have the obstacle of Milwaukee in the East. So do we think that game five is going to go our way? Like, what are our keys to success for game five at home in the Barclays Center? I think there's two players, really. I'm not questioning Kevin Durant at this point. He's Kevin Durant. I think our two keys are going to be Joe Harris and Landry Shamit. If they can hit their shots from the perimeter and really start laying it on the Bucks and start running up the score, I think we have a very good chance of winning. But if Joe Harris is going to have another one of those 1-11 nights and Shamit isn't playing his best basketball, I find it hard for us to win without all that perimeter shooting and spacing of the floor. Because the second they space the floor, that opens up Kevin Durant for one-on-ones or a lot more. And if he gets double teamed, you can kick to one of them too. And I know it's probably a hot take to say Landry Shamit's a key, but I really think he's one of the most important players for the rest of the series and the mattering of the outcome. Yeah, I I would agree with those two players. I think Joe Harris is probably number one key factor because if he, he can hit four to five threes of what he's been taking, I really think that he can be that guy who can help spread out the floor for other guys to go and score in the in- interior. And I think also along with Landry Shamit, who's also got the same thing as uh, Joe Harris, if he hits his shots, he hits his shots, then opens up the floor. I think if Jeff Green plays the way he did last game with that defensive intensity he played with, but also adds a scoring edge that he's had all season, I think it's going to be really tough for the Bucks to contain the Brooklyn crowd, especially with how mad they would be after uh, we saw what the rest did to us and what and how Kyrie got injured. I think we're really going to back the boys, and I think um, it's going to be tough for Milwaukee to come out there and just feel comfortable in Brooklyn. They're going to they're gonna be hackled. Chris Middleton's not going to have a good game, in my opinion. He's not a great away player, as I mentioned before. But if we can get Jeff Green and Joe Harris going, it's going to be really tough for the Bucs to win this game. 100%. One of the things I like when the Nets are home is when Giannis is at the free throw line and the 10-second uh, timer is on, the fans will actually count one second ahead to make Giannis like rush a little bit. <laughs> and I just think that's kind of like funny because Giannis, like notoriously, not only does he take a long time at the free throw line, but he's not a great free throw shooter. And the fact that he attacks the basket so much, you know, if he's not going to make those uh, plays to get the end one, he's going to have to shoot two free throws. And that could really sink Milwaukee. I think defensively, it might have to be a little bit of a -a hack-a-shack situation just to make sure that if Giannis does get to the basket, that we're not uh, allowing him to get the buckets before and we're trying to make him uh, to force him to score at the free throw line, which he's not great at. Yeah, my, um, I think it's, well, you have whammy power, of course, the GOAT, and then you have the fans chipping in. I feel like they they really just have a huge impact on Giannis and especially like Brendan's been saying um, the whole podcast, uh, Chris Middleton, once they, uh, the fans get into it, I feel like they just don't play their best. And that's going to be the key. The key is the fans. They're one of the big keys of this. And if we can just keep up the intensity and the crowd makes some noise, I have a really good feeling about this game. My one thing that I'm upset about is they made us get rid of the 10 second clock on the scoreboard the NBA said, quote, unquote, the Nets were bullying Giannis. So I guess the fans are bullying players now. You know, we can't have a clock anymore for a 10-second count. 
but I still I still love the comment. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, that's, that's a little that's a little soft by the NBA because the fans are able to heckle and pretty much say anything they want, um, you know, within the guidelines, if not like throwing stuff at, at the players, obviously. But you know, I, I, it was a little bit confusing. But you can't really stop, you know, all the fans in the stadium from counting. Like even if there's no clock, regardless, like they could still count. You know, what are you going to do? Kick out all the fans? So, you yeah. know, at, at the end of the day, home court advantage is absolutely key in this series. Every game that has been played at home, the home team has won. So hopefully that trend continues and we will see a home victory for the Brooklyn Nets, regardless of whether or not we have Irving or Harden. Because Game six is a home game too, by the way. I'm there. I'm going to Milwaukee. It's a home game. I'm, I'm just going to start screaming at Chris Middleton, Giannis. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have my own impact. Sure I'm basically home. just going to be a bench player. You got to be on vocal rest the day before. On Wednesday, no talking. Just drink a bunch of tea. No talking. Oh, I got you. I'm going to bring one of those microphones. You know, those little portable microphones? I'm going to bring yeah, one of those. Yeah. It's going to be great. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to get in all the Milwaukee fans, everything. I'm going to do everything I can. Awesome. I'm, so, I'm, I'm going to replace James Harden. It's okay, guys. I got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're going to have that impact. I'll try to be uh, hearing you on the TV feed while I'm watching it. You'll hear me. I'll... I'll, I'll I'll just I'll I'll tell you guys before I say something, and I'll yell as loud as I can, and you oh, guys got to tell me if you can hear me. That would be awesome. awesome. Yes. Yeah, we, we need something to disrupt the Bucks because the Bucks at home are forced to be reckoned with. Really, I mean the first game, game three, you know, we we almost had him game three, that unfortunate Bruce Brown sort of layup sequence, and then KD couldn't hit that really tough shot. But you know, hopefully game six we'll be able to make it a home game. That would be awesome. Yeah, I'm built different. I got this. Don't worry. Great to hear. Great to hear. All right. Well, I think that about wraps up this episode. Any closing remarks, guys? Well, thank you so much for having us on. It was a pleasure and we had a great time. And hopefully we can do this again in the future. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. I think uh, it was a great time. Uh, I'll definitely give this a listen. I hope everyone else gives us a listen around the Nets world. Um, this was a great opportunity for us to collab. And I think that we could definitely do this in the future. And I thank you for inviting us on. I uh, really enjoyed speaking to you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, do you guys just want to real quick shout out your uh, Twitter and your podcast? Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, we're the Brooklyn Netcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We post funny content. Uh, we do play by, not play by play, but we cover the games, make a bunch of tweets during the games. And any other information about the Nets they need to know will be on our page. And we post uh, hopefully a podcast a week is what we're trying to do. It varies on the week. And we're just trying to bring you as much Nets content as possible. And we're so thankful to be on this podcast. And hopefully we can look in the future. Nets in six. Awesome. Nets in six. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Brendan. And thanks uh, for listening, guys. My name was Christian Hale, and this has been the Nothing But Nets podcast. Let's go Nets.